Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and joining me today is Ryan Springer, the Senior Research Physiologist at Fauna Bio, a Berkeley, California-based medical research firm. He's a former postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and a specialist in cardiovascular and pulmonary physiology. Dr. Sprenger, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Problem. Thank you. And now today, what we are really going to get into is your concept, a revolutionary concept, which is known as the Studying Torpor in Animals for Space Health in Humans Experiment, or STASH. And this was recently selected by NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts Program for Phase 1 Development. So, mm -hmm. before we get into all that, which promises to be very cool, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to this place now? What uh, what was the road like that brought you here? Yeah, uh, you know, certainly a maybe serendipitous or fortuitous road, uh, certainly for me. But I, I started, so early on in my research career, I started in comparative physiology, cardiovascular pulmonary work, and primarily the animals that I was working in were hibernating species. Um, that was my, my general interest to begin with. And so throughout my undergrad and master's research, I worked in sort of what we would call the mecca of hibernation research in the United States. And that's where the 13-line ground squirrel, a very commonly used uh, hibernating model, uh, was often uh, experimented on in Wisconsin in the States. And so I was surrounded by a lot of hibernation physiologists and biologists, and I grew an interest in that. And early on in my, my hibernation research career, I, I became very interested in any mitigative effects that hibernation might serve for space flight and space exploration. It was something that I think like many of us do, I look up into the stars and, and think, how can I make an impact? So that, that interest grew through my early research career and really started to peak and, and flourish uh, when I went to UBC. For my doctoral research, I was in William Milsom's lab and a former postdoc in his lab, you might know this name, Jessica Meir. I met her on occasion and really a truly inspiring person who was making an impact in the space field. And, and so it just grew my interest in how hibernation might, might help spaceflight. And so as my career progressed, I you know, met a lot of people and talked with a lot of other hibernation physiologists and biologists about these types of questions and grew a network. And then when I uh, arrived at Fauna Bio, myself and Mark Betker, another person listed on the grant uh, as a co-PI, we got together and started to come up with ideas on how we might actually be able to study hibernation in space, which hasn't occurred yet. It's the, the capability is just not there. 
And so our first step was, well, then let's make the capability. How do we do this? How do we get to the point where we can study hibernation in space? And that's where Stash was born. Now, looking at the concept, it's really quite interesting. But what really surprised me was, now you guys developed this because, in fact, there's been very, actually, I think it'd be more accurate to say there's been no research so far in terms of hibernation in space. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I, that's how I would describe it as well. And, and a few key words on that is in space. There's certainly predictive experiments that we can run on the ground to start to understand, you know, maybe do these do these animals have protections against things that you might run into space. But but precisely so, there's been no examination in hibernation in space specifically. Mm-hmm. And in fact, yeah. I, I was actually surprised to, to hear that, uh, at least initially, because I know NASA has been looking into this for many years, ever since they mm-hmm. announced their journey to Mars plans. This was an idea that was on the books and they've, they've done work with SpaceWorks. I can recall reporting on that many years ago. And yeah, and the, and the idea being, of course, this may very well be necessary for deep space missions, long duration transits. So can you tell us, for my listeners, why is this technology considered so very, very important for missions to Mars and, of course, beyond? Yeah, yeah. I think really what it helps out with or what it's critical for is trying to find ways to protect human health in space. As I'm sure your listeners know, and as you know, that space is a very harsh environment. And so I think NASA has a, a RIDGE acronym that they use for the, the different hazards of space. And you know, I, I, if I'm remembering the RIDGE acronym correctly, it's radiation, isolation, distance from Earth, gravity fields, that's a really big one, obviously, and then hostile environments, I think, is their last. And hibernation itself might provide answers to almost every every part of that acronym. I mean, there seems to be precedence for radiation protection or radio protection in these uh, hibernating species. And, and that's actually something that's being well examined on the ground right now. But again, as more of a prediction rather than an actual examination because we can't mimic cosmic radiation precisely. As a matter of fact, we're actually looking into that ourselves, uh, myself and Mark Butker with, in collaboration with Mike Weil at Colorado State. Uh, we're using simulated cosmic radiation to, to try to understand if these animals have protections against low chronic doses like we would see in space. But that's all to say that there is precedence for these animals having radio protection. And that goes back to 19... 19- Gosh, I think 58 is when they started, maybe even earlier, 51. I think it was Smith in 51 and Kuskin in 59, Satya in 68. These are all scientists, hibernation biologists that have looked at this specific question. Do do they have protections against radiation? And it appears they do. I actually, there's another collaborator I have, Matteo Seri in in Italy. He's, He's done a more recent examination of synthetic torpor. So this is a torpor that's been induced in an animal that doesn't normally go into torpor. And even then they show some signs of radio protection. And so hibernation certainly might uh, provide protections against radiation, the radiation damage that you get, that you get in space. Isolation, if you're able to reduce activity in humans, you can sort of get rid of that feeling of isolation. So they're in, a, for example, if you see in the movies, maybe a pod or something like that, where they're in a suspended state and not really perceiving isolation. And that, that I think applies to the distance from Earth as well. And then gravity fields, this is another hot topic of research, particularly with hibernation, because these species appear to show protections against disuse atrophy, and that's both bone and muscle. And so these animals, for example, they're 
completely uh, immobile for up to nine months in some species, with some exceptions during the hibernation period. But they're not using their muscles and they're not using their bones and they're not loading their bones, I should say. And if, if, for example, you do that in a human, you lose muscle like crazy. It goes away quite quickly. It's disuse atrophy is, is a problem. And it's certainly a problem in space. And I know that astronauts spend a lot of time exercising to help mitigate this. But it seems that hibernation might provide tools or pathways that we can tap into to, to help mitigate these, these issues that you have in space. And so it, it really seems like hibernation might be a great catch-all for a lot of the problems that humans have in space. Now, in my mind, the other option is to get to where you're going faster, you can also reduce time and space that way. But I, I think there's limits at that as well. In fact, yes, in terms of what hibernation is good for there, yeah, it does put me in mind there are several classical examples from science fiction. And mm -hmm. one that comes to mind right now when you mentioned isolation was Aliens, where at the mm -hmm. very end, little Newt is saying to Ripley, so we're going to sleep all the way home? And then, of course, they, they go down for their repose, and the music is all nice and gentle and calm. And, and in fact, yes, this is, this is part of it. It's a, one of the greatest challenges with long-duration spaceflight. How do we keep a crew provided for the supplies? How do we deal with all the waste they're going to generate, not just human mm -hmm. waste, but all packaging and so forth? And ultimately, how do we keep them from going crazy and turning on each other? Because, mm -hmm. yeah. And an Orion spacecraft or any other kind of transfer habitat that's on the books right now, they're pretty cramped when, when all was said and done. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. That, that of course, is the main thing. I was interested to learn that, in fact, it could mitigate radiation exposure. Mm -hmm. Now, can you describe for us the STASH experiment? What exactly does it look like? Because I, I remember reporting on it and I thought, oh, that's that's quite neat. But, Yeah. Give us a little rundown on how it works. Yeah, yeah. So the STASH experiment as a whole is, you know, we, we designed it in three phases, more or less, to, to, to mirror the NIAC progression. Um, the first phase being, generally speaking, proof of concept and, and conceptual design of the unit, which, which we are quite far along on already. And then this building a prototype and testing and, and making sure that it actually works and measures the physiology we want to measure. And the second phase being testing the unit, or more or less making a flight-worthy unit, and then testing the unit on the ISS to make sure that it, again, is measuring the things that we want it to measure. And the, the third phase is, is, again, the most scientifically interesting phase, and that's actually putting a hibernating animal in space. And for the first time, understanding questions like, does a hibernator go into hibernation in space? Does it still show muscle atrophy and disuse atrophy protections? Does it show protections against radiation? And so... That's the phases of the experiment. And so what, we, what we've had to do initially with the proof of concept and design is basically make a unit that allows us to hibernate an animal in space. And as you might be able to guess, what you have to do to hibernate an animal in general is you have to make it cold and you have to take its food away. That's the two main things. Now, there are species that want to hibernate so bad that you could keep it warm and keep its food by it and it'll still go into hibernation. And that might be a useful tool in this endeavor. But, but that's precisely it is first, firstly making a unit that's capable of getting an animal into hibernation in space and being able to measure physiology and phenotypes that you might see in space to answer the questions like, is the animal hibernating and, and et cetera. And so that's, that's what STASH is really designed to do as, as it progresses. Now, in terms of the layout of it or the, uh, the mock-up, 
There was mm-hmm. a nice handy illustration there provided in your proposal. And so yes. you've got two animal chambers. So two rodents would be inside mm-hmm. these. And you've got a uh, infrared cameras watching them, a thermal shield to make sure the chambers are nice and cooled. And then a bunch, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of sensors that are recording their vitals. Yeah. So to, so to clarify, while they're in the chamber there, you, you're gradually lowering the temperature on them to induce a state of torpor and then seeing how they do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, 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 the engineering of this project has actually been quite a, quite a bit of fun. I've uh, dabbled myself in the past uh, in designing these types of equipment, not necessarily meant for space, but meant to measure physiology. And so being able to entangle this these physiological measurements with something that would work in space has been a lot of fun. So, and you're precisely right, two animals we've designed for, and this is if we were to send, for example, a 13-line ground squirrel, that's about the space that we have in the unit. We are space limited in the sense that we're partnering with BioServe Space Technologies and specifically Tobias Netterweiser at Boulder. And together we're integrating the unit that we've designed into the Sable unit, the Space Automated Biological Laboratory unit, which is already on the ISS. Several of those units are on the ISS. And so that provides us the opportunity to more or less refrigerate the animals. That's that's how you cool these animals in on the ground, for example. And so we've got a refrigerating unit that can very precisely change environmental temperature. And so being able to, to fit two animal enclosures into this Sable unit within the stash unit allows us the opportunity to measure, like you're saying, a, a lot of different things. We can get things like total ventilation uh, using pressure sensors. We can get things like uh, metabolic rate, oxygen consumption, and CO2 production with CO2 and O2 sensors. We've got infrared camera to monitor the animal's activity. We can also implant the uh, animals with telemeters that allow us to measure things like heart rate, blood pressure, and activity as well. And so we, we can grab as much physiology as we can possibly fit as far as sensors onto this unit which I think is important to the study because, you know, like we were saying, we only can send two animals at a time if we were sending one unit. So we've got to grab as much as we can from from each of these animals. And so, yeah, and thermal shield to make sure the animals are maintained at the temperature that we're happy with because these electronics produce heat. I think in that diagram, we've also factored in data acquisition boxes so that we can digitalize the voltage signals from these sensors. So it allows us to real-time monitor these animals and know exactly when they're in hibernation for how long. And of course, I want to emphasize this. This is all done slowly, gradually, carefully so that the the animals are safe. And yeah. Oh, absolutely. By by all the ethics committees, which we interact with quite frequently, these animals are kept. They're they're very precious animals to us. So we we keep them as safe as we possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Must emphasize that there because, of course, the mention of animal testing in space. But of course, yeah. And with the data from this... I mean, eventually the idea is to do human trials, I, I would imagine. Yeah, we, we would like to. I mean, you know, and, and it's hard to say exactly where the data go. And, and we hope that it goes positively. But, you know, as science is, it, we don't ne- necessarily know exactly yet. But that that is the hope one day. We hope that we can ascertain some information from this that will help us either produce some sort of targeted mimetic that allows us to induce hibernation in humans or to at least find the medics that help with the radio protection or something like that. So yeah, the, the end goal is is really not just purely academic, but it also is, as the title, our title and stash suggests, we, we really hope to, to help humans with this. We hope to to mitigate some of these effects. And this is something that's not been that's not been mitigated yet. With planned long duration flights on the upcoming schedule, 
you know, there certainly is a danger for the astronauts as, as they progress in that, that long duration flight. So we're hoping that we can help with that. We hope we can help humans. Certainly a tough thing to have to, to do and talk about with regard to, to having animals help us with this, but sometimes yes. a necessary thing, certainly. Yeah. Yep. And of course the caveats and addendums. Cruelty free mm -hmm. and, and been approved. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And yep. uh, yep. now in terms of this research, there are likely to be applications for here on Earth too, as I would imagine, because and this is I wish I'd mentioned this sooner, but this is in fact a growing field in biotechnology, isn't it? Studying mm -hmm. as you guys said in your uh, proposal, the phenotype of hibernating animals for human health applications. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of applications here on Earth, what what kind of things could we see coming from this? Yeah, yeah, you're precisely right um, about this. And I'm glad you did bring it up. I, I think it's a really interesting and, and very important facet to this type of research is, again, we're looking at these, these questions in a very extreme environment. I and mean, what it does is it provides a novel way to look at some of these questions that we still run into here on Earth. And, you know, the radiation type is different, but it still might provide some answers to how these animals are protecting themselves from radiation, which also could be used potentially to protect humans against radiation on, on Earth as well. But I think a, a really important one for this, and something that certainly Fauna Bio is interested in as a company, and we are as well, is you know with, with a new novel environment in which you're studying things like disuse atrophy, bone atrophy, and these circumstances in which muscle metabolism has changed or must be altered to protect these tissues. Th these are hot topics on Earth. Muscle metabolism in the in the field of obesity, for example, is very important to understand with trying to drop mass, but not dropping muscle mass, for example, but preserving muscle mass and bone mass in situations where you have disuse atrophy in humans, it, it is very important to study. And again, providing a novel environment in which you can test these questions, I think is going to be really key to helping, again, not only humans in space, but humans on the ground. And the way we designed this unit was not to be specifically just for hibernation. We're hoping to provide a unit that is usable by a lot of different researchers with different questions. We don't necessarily have to cool the unit. You can keep the unit basically any temperature between four degrees Celsius and 37. And so you can ask physiological questions in space as well. That's not necessarily hibernation derived. You can get these answers from this unit as well. So I, I think it's, well, we hope it to be a, a far reaching way of examining important questions. And that, and that's not even talking about cardiovascular and pulmonary risks and, you know, the SANS risks, for example, the space associated neuroocular syndrome. You know, these are, these are other areas that there's not a tremendous understanding about, but we might gain more of an understanding with these types of experiments on the space station. So, you know, what, what we can pull for that as far as health on earth is again, a, a novel way of looking at it. So in fact, if I were to just come right out and ask it, could we be looking at for real cryogenic suspension in the not too distant future for aging humans who want to cheat death, but also for people who are hoping for medical cures for currently untreatable, un uncurable diseases? I mean, that is a bit of a sense I get. That was a huge craze towards the end of the 20th century, so... Mm -hmm. I, I would I would say a lot of people are sort of cynical about that idea now, or but is that in fact a possibility here? You know, I, I've, I've been asked that question a lot, actually, and it's a question I've thought about a lot. And I think a lot of the hibernation researchers have thought about a lot, too. And, and that that really is the golden egg. That's the golden apple is, you know, getting humans to hibernate or go into some sort of suspend, suspended state, which 
could have far-reaching effects, like you said, for longevity or, um, you know, even acute traumatic injury. There's, there's a lot of things that hibernation might be able to provide for humans. And, you know, that that's actually a question that Fauna Bio is asking specifically, not, not even necessarily related to Stash, but that's a question Fauna Bio is asking specifically is how do we tap into these extreme animals or animals doing these extreme things to help cure incurable diseases or come up with new targets or new pathways to to help with issues that we have on earth. But to me, you know, obviously my greatest interest is that specifically, can we get a human to hibernate? Can we go into a, a suspended state? And, you know, this, this is, you're right. This is a question that's been asked for a long time. I think DARPA used to hold symposia in the early 2000s, asking that question specifically of the hibernation field. Are we there yet? Or how close are we? And it's hard to put a number on how close we are, but you know, certainly in the last 20 years from the onset of the 21st century, we have come a long ways. I mean, we we now have very reliable methods of getting animals to go into animals that don't normally hibernate, getting them to go into a synthetic torpor state that mimics the hibernation state quite well. And, and oftentimes is providing protections that we see in the hibernation or hibernating species. So we're moving forward, but are are we at the point where we can get a human specifically to hibernate? I, I certainly wouldn't say that's like a next five years thing. But maybe ten, maybe fifteen. I I think we're moving in a really good direction, and and really at the at the end of the day, we're really hoping that Stash will help with that. We're hoping that we can help move that that question forward uh, into a usable thing. Yes, well, I certainly hope so because the applications for space exploration alone are very mm-hmm. exciting, and this is one of two sort of how would I describe this. So the two avenues of research, it seems, when it comes to deep space missions, it's like, can we get there faster? And Mm -hmm. if not, what can we do to just cut down on the amount of time the crews actually have to be in a a wakeful state, eating, breathing, defecating, so forth, (laughs) carrying out all these human functions that, of course, take up space and consume resources and produce waste. Mm -hmm. Yes. And if I were to ask you, and I, I hate that I always do this, but I always love to ask people, researchers, it's like putting aside all the cautious optimism or, you know, we don't we don't want to speak too soon on the developments that we're, we're helping here. But in terms of like, what do you like to visualize here? Like if you're thinking about your work and the potential applications in the future there. Mm-hmm. What exactly does this look like to you? What do you think that we could be achieving by the time, say, 2040s, 2050s, that missions are going yeah. to deep space? Yeah. Well, I think in my mind, again, throwing aside the cautious optimism, I would love to see uh, some sort of suspended state in which humans are able to go into hibernation-like sp- state. I-, I like that facet of the two options of going into deep space travel. Because I, and and really, I, I think the best case scenario is it's both. You travel faster and you put humans down into a suspended state. What that helps with, with regard to putting humans into a suspended state, for example, is weight. Like you say, humans have to consume things. And that that's weight that has to go up into space. We defecate, we do all these things that are a product of our metabolism. And what hibernation might provide is with the suspended state comes a reduced metabolism. And so we consume less things we defecate less and we consume less oxygen. So there's not as much of a worry on that side. And, and that's all true from hibernators. They, they don't defecate during hibernation season. They don't urinate. They don't consume any food and they don't consume water either. And so in an ideal world, in, in the 
maybe not so distant future. I would love to see that specifically. As far as space flight's concerned, I would love to see it, or at least help with getting to the point where we can move humans into a, a hibernation-like state. And, and we're learning that it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact same as a hibernating ground squirrel, for example, that's going down to a body temperature of two degrees Celsius. You know, bears hibernate as well, and their, their body temperature is not going nearly that low. And so there seems to be this continuum in which you can fall, and, and the benefits, they accumulate quite quickly, even if you're early or, or high up in this hibernation state. And I think added on to this, personally, I would love to see hibernation continue to provide avenues for human health on Earth. I think there's opportunity there. You know, I, hibernators are well protected against ischemia reperfusion. Hibernators are well protected against diabetes. They're well protected against cardiovascular issues. So, you know, these are things that I think we can tap into again with these new avenues or new ways of asking these questions, including the stash units, so that we can help humans here, but we can also get humans to go further. Uh, that, that's my ideal yes. progression. Yeah. Excellent. And well, I hope generation ships might be a potential application someday, because of course, in terms of the the long, long term, and again, this is something that not just NASA, of course, but futurists of every kind and research institutes, how do we go interstellar, right? Mm -hmm. Beyond deep space and going to other planets and being interplanetary, how do we go interstellar? And again, it's it's one of two options there if you're if you're talking about people. It's either go really fast or again hibernate, build ships mm -hmm. that can accommodate lots of people, and hopefully that they will have that option for going down for uh, reefer sleep, as uh, heard it called. Yeah. So yeah, interstellar travel. This this too could be a dream at this point, but definitely. Uh, do you ever think that when you're conducting your research, it's like we're actually getting closer to realization of this once fever dream? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, you know, I think I think we've all got that starry-eyed, you know, bushy-tailed look into the stars and and see how far we can go. And you know, so when you're doing research like this, that's something that you'd at least like to contribute to. And and that's where I put myself in a lot of this. Is you know, I. It, it might be that I that I'm not involved in the teams that do this or am alive during a time that this happens, but I'd, I'd like to think that we're at least helping progress that forward and, and providing the the basic knowledge that we're going to need to maybe one day do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and of course, this is a question that comes up a lot. I found in science communication, and I'm wondering if people like yourself on the research end, if you're ever subjected to this, whatever it seems the subject of humans getting out into space, the migration to space, greater exploration, or even, or especially human settlement on other planets and such, there, there's pushback from people mm. who would say, oh, this is distracting from our problems here. Shouldn't we deal with our problems here first? Is that something you've encountered there in your, in your work? Well, I, yeah, certainly. You know, I, what I, what I should say is this type of question is certainly have been with regard to the hibernation and interplanetary travel and, and, and helping, you know, one helping the other. It's certainly something that that has come up. And, and, you know, when you look at space agencies as a whole, there certainly is interest, but it's not as much interest as other things. And I think that's sort of reflecting that that general feeling of, you know, why not just make a better home or, or clean up our home rather than trying to go to different planets. And I think 
you know, for me, I, I don't think one distracts from the other. I think they could potentially inform on each other. You know, helping clean up the earth here might help us prep a planet for interplanetary settlement. And so, you know, in my mind, I, I think there's benefit to come from both. And so, but in a limited resource environment, maybe that's not the case. I'm biased, of course. I, I think interplanetary travel and, and settlement is, I think, important for the progression of the human species. But again, we're talking pretty far out. I don't think we're there yet. Well, that yeah. is the correct answer, yes. <laughs> as far as <laughs> as far as I've learned that that yes, this is definitely the case. It's that mm -hmm. we can do both. And in fact, we may need to do both. One may be very much dependent upon the other. However, that's that's a subject for uh, probably a whole another episode. <laughs> a debate for uh, another time. <laughs> oh, yes. In any case, thank you for coming on and best of luck with your research. And so final question there. Now that you have been selected by the NASA's uh, Innovative Advanced Concepts or NIAC program, mm -hmm. the next step will be to build a prototype for testing aboard the ISS. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what we see uh, our progression happening. Um, like I said, we're, I've been thinking about this concept quite a bit. We've been working on this for some time, trying to figure out what are the best ways to do these things with regard to this unit. So yeah, in, in phase one, the goal by the end of phase one is to have a working prototype that can show proof of concept in the, in the context of being able to get an animal to go into hibernation in it, for it to measure the, the physiology that we intend to measure and for it to integrate with the Sable unit flawlessly, essentially. That's the goal for phase one. And, you know, obviously after that, like I think most other NIAC uh, awardees this year and, and in other years, you know, the goal is to to put ourselves in the best position possible to go for phase two. And that, you know, in phase two, we, we see ourselves building essentially a flight-worthy unit, a unit that's ready to go up. So that that's where our progression is is at right now, certainly. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of fun with the program so far, the people that I've interacted with, they're 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 really great people, and and I'm I'm really excited for for the progression of even just phase one, for example, with the orientation meetings and everything, uh, because I I get the opportunity to meet a lot of really intelligent people thinking about a lot of really cool questions, and you know there is a little bit of intimidation in there because if you look at the list of awardees this year, I, there's not really any looking at any sort of biological questions except for us, so I'll be stepping a little bit out of my comfort zone with regard to physiology and asking the types of questions that might be useful or, or interesting to the people, the other people on the list. But yeah, very, very excited for the progression of, of phase one and, and aiming for phase two. Well, excellent. And as I said, I wish you the best of luck because this is one of many technologies, especially the selectees for this year that are so very cool and that I really would like to yeah. see happen. As a, an insider here, as someone who was part of this uh, program in the selectees, the objectives or the priorities really that have been assembled or that, that sort of become clear from all the people who, who were selected for development, yes, mm -hmm. they are how do we facilitate interplanetary exploration with crude vehicles? How do we facilitate interstellar exploration? So far, just robotic vehicles. And mm -hmm. what other what other priorities would you say really showed up this year? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think you're right on a lot of the exploratory side. You know, I think 
there's there's quite a bit of interest in improving imaging, uh, deep space imaging. I think that's uh, if I'm remembering correctly, that's quite that, that shows up quite a bit on the list. Um, I think there's even one one that I'm really interested in, in talking with the the lead PI on is it was entitled "Detoxifying Mars." It's um, talking about getting rid of uh, percolates. Um, so you know that that's a that's a terraforming type question. You know, so th I think there's good there's a good coverage, um, but but I I think you hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of the interest is in improving exploration that's not manned. Um, and in improving imaging, so being able to capture these images and study uh, different parts of the universe with with more clarity. So I, that's a big interest. And and like I said, it, we're the only ones on that list that are interested in a biological question and a hibernation question to boot. And you know, and I, I think that sort of mirrors NASA's sort of overall goal. I mean, there is still some interest in hibernation type questions, biological type questions, but it's not nearly as high as as these other questions. And, you know, so there are people working on it, on these types of questions, again, on the ground. So there remains interest, I think, in hibernation. It's an encouraging interest. But but that's how, it how I would describe the list uh, this year, certainly. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I hope very much that we get a chance to talk in the future, that there are new developments. Oh, I'd love to, in yeah that include an experiment that goes to the ISS and hopefully some progress towards the inevitable or desirable human trials and, and tests. That would be very interesting to see. And yeah, because of course, yes, Mars right at this point, NASA is saying that a truly crewed mission, one that goes to Mars and has surface operations for several months or more and then returns home with all this wonderful science and uh, martian samples and so forth that's not likely mm -hmm. to happen until 2040 if that mm -hmm. and i feel yeah there's a bit of a crisis here we need to whoop ourselves up and try to get try to get there sooner so yes yeah, i'd love to see it in, yep yeah and if in fact hibernation is necessary if we can't or not even advanced propulsion alone, right? But it does mm -hmm. seem like uh, maybe this would be a better, not a either or, but an and sort of thing, you know? I, yeah, um, I, I think so yeah. too. I think, I think these two would, would service themselves quite nicely. You can go faster with less weight. Mm -hmm. so, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Win, win, win. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe thank you day. so much. Well, no, thank you. Thank so you. Much. And, uh, and one more time, I only keep repeating this because I can't emphasize it enough. Best of luck and Thank wishing you. you all success. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a joy to, to talk with you. I've, I've had a lot of fun. And to my listeners, I want to recommend you check out the STASH proposal, which again is short for Studying Torpor in Animals for Space Health in Humans. You can read about it all on NASA's website. Just simple word search and it will take you there. Be sure to check out some of the other selectees for this year's NIAC program and tune in in the coming weeks as we will once again be talking about some exciting missions that are currently in progress or will be happening in the next few years, as well as concepts like the Hubble tension and spermia and the water world hypothesis. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space.
hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.